Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Marianne Garneau. Marianne is a graduate student in philosophy at the New School for Social Research. She lives in New York City and is also a stay-at-home mom. She devotes most of her time to labor organizing for industrial workers of the world and part of her time to writing articles about politics. And she also works as an editor for a number of different projects. So hello, Marianne. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Yes. It's really nice to chat with you today. We are here in um, Marianne's home in Prospect Park or near Prospect Park with her son, Dean, who uh, who may be sharing some of his opinions as well today. <laughs> Um, so before we get started, I want to kind of unpack a little bit for the listeners, you know, why we're having this conversation around um, the social justice warrior and the identity politics that are aligned with it. And and because I imagine that some of the listeners, you know, hearing Marianne's bio may think or, or you know, to themselves how this is a different kind of bio than than some of the other interviewees in that Marianne doesn't necessarily, um, as far as I know, represent any Eastern philosophical traditions. Uh, she's not a yoga teacher or a meditation teacher, but she has a lot of interesting insights about politics. <clears throat> so part of the inspiration around having this conversation today, I have to admit, is, is inspired by, uh, is partly a polemical inspiration on my part, because if engaging with Eastern philosophy is uh, partly a process of deconstructing and disentangling ourselves from the social structures and the structures of thought uh, that limit and constrain our access to a more expansive uh, point of view, a more expansive understanding, then part of that process, uh, at least for me, is to disentangle ourselves from the political ideologies that that. I see, at least, as being pervasive in the yoga community. And, of course, I may I admit that I may be setting up a straw man there, and I realize that a lot of our listeners are perhaps have a very diverse range of political opinions. But in my experience, at least what I encounter in my Facebook feed uh, very often is is um, a, a kind of inclination towards a very crude form of identity politics and, and a kind of social justice warriorism. And we're going to unpack all of what that means today. Um, Marianne is actually, a, we were students together at the New School. <clears throat> And um, Marianne doesn't know this, but she was perhaps one of the three individuals who I genuinely liked during my time <laughs> here. That's, that's good to know. And oh, thank you, Dean. Dean just gave me a book on the the Vice Guide to Travel. Excellent. I'll have to read that <laughs> later. Thank you, Dean. Um, and even though Marianne and I don't necessarily hang out so much anymore, I feel like she's has a presence in my life from her very interesting Facebook feed. And I have to say, of all of the Facebook feeds that come up. <clears throat> in my own feed, Marianne's is often has the most intelligent and insightful things to say and nuanced things to say about politics, and I almost always 100% agree with her. And um, and her comment thread is populated by um, people who are also almost equally as insightful, I would say. And and I think that the the comment thread is really an example of what. Um, political dialogue, respectful political dialogue can be like, you know, especially in comparison to the kind of very inflammatory rhetoric, inflammatory conversations that we're seeing. So um, so with that, before we start to unpack social justice warrior, Marianne, do you want to just explain a little bit about your story and what you what led you to the intersection of philosophy and political organizing? Yeah, I mean, I've always basically been someone who is politically oriented or politically motivated 
I remember as a teenager, I think I got into politics basically through the punk rock scene where I grew up. And uh, punk rock at that time was very political. And I started reading books about politics and thinking about things and questioning things. And then there's basically been no looking back. I've gone through periods in my life of being more or less active, but I've always spent a lot of time thinking about politics. Now I'm writing a dissertation in that area. And so I kind of spend all of my time thinking about politics in one way or another, um, which is why I hope that my commentary is like maybe a little bit insightful and intelligent because I am doing this in a kind of sustained sort of serious way. Yeah, yeah. So what is your um, dissertation on? What's the topic? The topic is collective action, but I like to joke... You know, if you've seen the movie Mean Girls, my dissertation is kind of like a burn book for all of contemporary <laughs> political writing and political philosophy. I basically think that people no longer how know how to think about politics. Yes, I agree. And the reason why they don't know how to think about politics is because they've lost the concept of collective action. Mm. So to me, on a fundamental level, politics is what happens when multiple people act together to do something or to bring something about, which cuts out a lot of things that we take for politics. So it cuts out, you know, politics is not a matter of what you like happen to believe Mm -hmm. in your soul or something, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not a matter of... um, yeah, just like having the right opinions. And it's not a matter of the things that you do individually. Mm. So another thing I like to say is just because about 20, 30, 40 years ago now, um, feminists, among others, made the point that the personal is political. So the lived daily experience that we have and the way that that's shaped, for example, at the time, women were largely consigned to being housewives, they were pointing out that those personal conditions are actually politically significant. That's true, Mm -hmm. and I think that that remains true, but it doesn't mean that politics is personal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the ways that people have tended to go wrong is Mm -hmm. nowadays people treat politics as though it's personal, as though it's a matter of personal beliefs and personal actions and personal language. And I think that that that's misguided. Mm, yeah. So that's a good segue into this conversation then, because, you know, one of the things that I, you know, found very interesting about the stuff that you put on your, uh, that you share on Facebook, and one of them was a common, um, let's call it a series of posts, where where you share an article and then the comment is essentially um, something like, you know, this is the newest candidate for worst um, example of SJW writing. And I have to say, I never had seen SJW or Social Justice Warrior before until your Facebook feed. And when I saw SJW and I, when I first saw it on your page and I read a couple of the articles you posted, I, I found them profoundly annoying and, and, and I could have, you know, pointed out a number of reasons why, but I didn't have this umbrella term to kind of, you know, encapsulate what this was. And so... When I looked it up, you know, I realized, okay, social justice warrior, figured out what it was. And then I was also dismayed to find that, you know, the word had been being used for about five or six years, and I was sort of brand new to the conversation. So anyway, um, but, you know, social justice warrior, I mean, we all, you know, both of you and I support social justice in a certain kind of way. So, but this kind of pejorative term indicates something very specific. So will you just kind of define and, and unpack what it, what it is to be a social justice warrior in this kind of negative context that we're going to talk about? Yeah, so the word 
and part of the reason why you probably hadn't heard of it, it's a pejorative term that was coined by right-wingers. <laughs> so it was coined by, like, alt-right, right-wing jerks mm. to describe leftists. I and, see. and so it had a, a particularly kind of narrow usage for a while, and now it's sort of making its way into the more general vocabulary. And I've taken flack... I mean, that's that's my child yelling at you about a, about a phone. Um, I have taken flack from some fellow leftists for using the term because, mm. you know, it, they're worried that I'm giving credence to it or that I'm kind of quietly aligning myself with the alt-righters or right-wingers who say that leftists are all a bunch of special snow, snowflakes who complain and they have sensitive, hurt feelings and whatever. But the reason why I actually use the term is because, like, I want the left to not become the caricature that the right has of us, right? Like, I want us to avoid the bad pitfalls of leftist politics so that we don't start living up to that, like, reputation that the right-wingers made up about us. And it's something that you see happening. So, yeah, I started kind of this running joke where I was collecting candidates for worst social justice warrior writing. And one of the first examples I remember was about... It was an article addressing complaints that if you go to the grocery store, the supermarket, you see a lot of prepackaged food. So you'll see, instead of a watermelon, a bunch of watermelon chunks pre-cut, put into a plastic clamshell, you know and priced for sale. And, you know, people justifiably complain that this is a waste of packaging, this is a waste of food, this is bad for the environment. And this person wrote this article saying that it's ableist, so discriminatory against people of different physical and mental abilities, to complain about this because there are people for whom this is actually, you know, they don't, they're, 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 motor skills or their um, chronic pain or whatever are such that they actually rely on things like these. Which is, like, a lot of what I call social justice warrior writing, the problem with it is that it takes the form of a really kind of uh, heavy-handed, sanctimonious 1,500-word essay. The point that this person was making, when you summarize it in a sentence, is kind of legit. Like, that's yeah. it, that, it's an okay point to make, to yeah. be like, well, there's this other side to this, whatever. But they had written this, like, 1,000, 1,500-word sanctimonious essay about how you're ableist if you criticize overpackaging of foods. And, like, that's just, that's goofy at that point. And you're not really doing your side any favors. <laughs> so let's look at some of the other examples of that. Because I, you know, when I, when I first came to you about doing this episode, you know, I asked you for some examples of this so I could read up on some of it myself. Because, you know, I, I saved a, actually a couple of the ones that you put up on Facebook, but I, I didn't get the whole series. And I do think that, as I said it in the email, that you should absolutely do sort of like an anthology of the words (laughs) (laughs) with your running commentary. I actually think that would sell. So anyway, um, there's an idea for you. We can publish it with Embodied Philosophy Press if you want to. (laughs) Perfect. Um, So the article, okay, so I'm I'm reading what you shared to me. 
uh, in, um, so here's some examples of SJW writing. This article arguing that the word polyamorous appropriates the word poly from Polynesian people. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of my favorites. (laughs) It is really good. And I mean, this one is the most kind of transparently ridiculous. I mean, it just feels transparently ridiculous. So I'm just going to go through these and then I want to kind of maybe unpack like a few different features that these all have in common. So then the other one, this piece arguing that you can't even call yourself an intersectional feminist if you're white, which, you know, on the face of it, when I looked at that, you know, again, like like even you're saying, it's like a nuanced thing. It's sort of like there's some points there. There's some kind of like something that resonates as true, but then it gets taken too far. And then the next one, you'd um, this post saying white people can't struggle against racism, which just seems, and that was like, yeah, anyway, we'll continue talking about it in a second. This piece, <laughs> roughly saying that it's ableist to label overpackaging of foods wasteful, so we covered that. And then uh, this article saying that travel is classist, and then you marked in the email, which sparked the mother of all debates on my Facebook wall and about six unfriendings. Oh, yes. Wow. It was an epic day. Yeah, I mean, I don't really... I Did you unfriend, or did people unfriend no. you? Okay. I almost have... I, I kind of have a rule. I never, ever unfriend yeah. people. I'll accept most friend requests. So... My friend co- coined a phrase, left book, which is which kind of describes my relationship, most of my relationship to Facebook. So, yeah, I, I'm friends with, like, some people from, from high school and family, but the bulk of my friends list at this point is just other leftists, yeah. many of whom I've never met in real life. But, you know, you see that you have 57 friends in common with someone, you know, 56 other leftists or whatever, and so you friend them. And so I will accept friend requests, and I never unfriend anybody because I do believe in debate and yeah. and exchange of ideas and disagreeing with people. And but I get unfriended all the time, and I I have a running, <laughs> and and I will I will also it's important that I will also admit that I am kind of a huge obnoxious jerk sometimes. So you gave me credit at the beginning for having reason discussion debate on my wall, which also happens, but I will be kind of a snarky internet jerk. I will totally admit that. And Would some- you say you're sometimes a troll, Marianne? I am sometimes a troll. <laughs> I am sometimes a troll. I do it for pedagogical reasons. This <laughs> is how full of shit I am. Anyway, no, uh, and so, like, people get really frustrated and they unfriend me because they disagree with what I'm saying, which I think in itself is kind of like it's a fascinating phenomenon. Yeah. Exactly, and is problematic. And there are, have been articles written about how social media has become an echo chamber and you only see news and opinion from the perspective that you already agree with. And you do kind of see that tendency where, yeah, people, they don't like what you're saying, so they just cut you out of their feed, right? Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so what what relates all these examples? Oh, and then one more thing before we talk about that. Yes. The, then the last one was the pieces echoing a common refrain that Beyonce's lemonade is not for white people. Yeah. Yeah. That, so let's talk about that one. So it was funny because after Lemonade came out, and by the way, I watched it either that day or the next day or something, and I I I, I was like. I was sucked into it. Like, I couldn't believe how good it was. I thought, she's really famous. This is a vanity project. Sure, it's kind of like um, genre bending, but it probably won't be that good. And I watched it, and I was just like, wow. Like, the performance. And it was interesting because it really, like, it was politically and socially significant. Like, that was coming through, but artistically, it was amazing. Anyway... In the wake of that, there were all of these articles where, you know, it it was received 
generally positively by critics, but, you know, maybe... I don't even remember some any criticism being leveled against it, like on an artistic level or music level or anything. Um, but there was immediately this flood of articles, like shaking their finger at white people saying, like, this is not for you. Um, and, like, you shouldn't listen to this. And this is... It's, it's a letter from, like... Beyonce to other black women and it's about black women's like subjugation and empowerment and it's therefore not for white people to consume and the first thing that was funny about that is like I'm sure Beyonce would highly disagree like she would like you to download and pay for her album everybody (laughs) you know and second like what does that even mean I mean if you and it's an increasingly popular opinion that so you know your perspective just is your identity, yeah. right? So, like, if you're um, like a white person, then you are supposed to line up in such and such a way, or whatever. And and it's bizarre because it's it's almost like a very it, I mean, it's racist and it's reprehensible, and it pretends that there's no such thing as having solidarity with other yes. people. Yeah. And it's a conf- it's a confusion and a perversion of, of a few points. So if you really excavate one of the points that they're they're riffing off of people who who take up this position is the idea that for example all white people are a little bit racist mm-hmm. that's actually something that i agree with yeah. right and yeah. the reason is because we don't just invent our own outlooks or mindsets or beliefs mm-hmm. those are things that we get from society society is fundamentally racist and white supremacist and so just atmospherically, like, that's something that... It, it's how we are taught to, to think about race in the first place. It's how we are taught to think about ourselves and other people in the first place. So, yes, all white people carry, like, that racism around, and it's, it, it actually takes work to, like, undo that and yeah. to fight against that. However, that does not imply that, like, your identity is and remains your perspective forever and ever. It doesn't mean you can't become critical and questioning about that. And it certainly doesn't mean that, for example, if you're white, you can't be outraged that, A, Philando Castile was summarily executed, and B, the cop who did that was exonerated. Yeah. Right? Like, in fact, if we can't have solidarity with each other, and if I, as a white person, can't be outraged, Outrage that that happens to black people, then we're hopeless politically. <laughs> then we're hopeless politically. <laughs> um, you know, we, we can't get anything accomplished if we can't have that kind of solidarity that bridges identities. So the other place that um, this misguided thinking comes from is something that's called standpoint theory or standpoint epistemology, which is a fancy philosophy term, as you know, for um, the theory of knowledge and how we know things. Mm -hmm. And back in the mm, 80s or 90s, maybe closer to the 90s, again, um, some feminist philosophers, so philosophers of knowledge, pointed out that, in fact, maybe even starting earlier, uh, uh, feminists and also um, critical uh, race theorists started pointing out that there are things that bec- that are visible and apparent to to women and to people of color and to people of different abilities just based on their lived experience and the way they go through life day to day. So yeah. for example, when I had a kid and I started pushing a stroll around this city all the time, 
I suddenly saw how inaccessible it was. Mm-hmm. There are very few subway stations with elevators. They're, the ones that do have elevators often are simply out of service. The MTA claims to have resources online to find this out in advance to plan your trip if you need accessible subway station service. But that is that website is not maintained so that information is not available. Mm. And I saw how inaccessible the world of New York subway transportation is to somebody who has mobility issues. Yeah. Um, however, that does not mean... So the people who came up with this theory never meant for that to mean that you can't share those insights. Mm-hmm. In fact, they thought that was the whole point. Maybe we can use people who are oppressed to gain a particular insight or vantage onto, for example, that oppression or the way that society functions for some and not for others. But of course then those become shareable insights and shareable reasons for changing society. Whereas nowadays there's this bad tendency among the left to think that like, you know, well, you you are this kind of person, you have this perspective, and then somebody else has this kind of perspective, and then like as though there's no... There's no meeting on that. There's no, for example, collective action and will to change things, mm-hmm. like make the subway more accessible. Mm-hmm. And based on that, actually, I, this sort of reminds me of something that you had remarked in one of your posts, that it, just to kind of get into the philosophy of it, like there's there's like a logical error in the idea that um, that it is, in principle not capable of being understood. Like you were, I'm I'm not articulating this well, but you had made a comment about what it means to know or to understand something. And it is not at the level of someone's, you know, um, affective experience alone. Can you talk a little bit more about about that? Yes, absolutely. So that was something I, I had, somebody had written an article online in which they said something like, I will never, they said this, I can't remember about whom, but let's say I think it was a relative of Freddie Gray. So mm-hmm. he was another black man in Baltimore who was killed by police for no reason. Um, and they said, like, in relation to Freddie's, Freddie Gray's relatives or something like, oh, I will never know your pain. I will never have any idea. This is a very popular thing to say. I will never have any idea what it's like or, you know, and I will never understand as though you can never kind of, you know... Um, Reach beyond your own contingency. Exactly. And and I said in comment, in reply to this, I was like, really? Like, you can't make an analogy from your own experience? Like, granted, you're never going to be another person or have exactly their head. But at the same time, like, you don't think that you can imagine or draw analogies to your own experience or whatever. So this is another very bad trap that we fall into, and it keeps... And it, and it, it, it erodes the idea of working together. It erodes solidarity. And I don't think that it is, like, backed up by the evidence at all. I mean, like, if we were never capable of imagining somebody else's perspective, then we would never be able to, like, read a novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that's what a novel is asking you to do. Imagine yourself in this different place as this different character or whatever and, like, make it real with your own imagination. If we weren't able to do that, you know, then there would be no art, probably. Yeah, yeah. 
So I want to get at this, uh, um, what we're talking about um, in, from sort of another angle as well, because, you know, the, the term white privilege is, is, is thrown around a lot these days. And, and, you know, you and I are both here while you are a woman and you have your own intersectional experience. Um, we're both white. And so, you know, maybe the person that's still skeptical, skeptical of our conversation might appeal to that, you know, in a kind of like, well, that's just your opinion and you're, because you're in this white privileged situation, which of course, you know, everything that we've said so far would, would problematize that position. But, you know, I was listening to a really, uh, one of my new favorite podcasts, Partially Examined Life. Have you, do you know that podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I really like those guys, even though it's all dudes, but they had a really intelligent and nuanced conversation about white privilege and, and specifically, you know, why we would want to talk about white privilege versus just um, racial injustice for a particular um, uh, ethnicity or or marginalized person, and and the idea was that you know to speak of somewhat racial injustice is not going to capture like the privilege of not having to fear you know having the privilege of not having to fear being pulled over to the side of the road because we're black or not having to fear walking into a Dwayne Reed and someone following us around the store because they're going to assume that we're going to steal something like you know but the term white and so uh, white privilege, you know, in that understanding, it's, 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 if it's appealed to in that way, it's easier to wrap your heart, I won't even say mind around it, it's easier to wrap your heart around it, meaning it's easy to be persuaded when one appeals to another person's compassion in that kind of way. And, and what, but what, how it's usually used is it's weaponized, right? Like, oh, that's just your, you know, it's, it's used as a way of creating a division between you and another person, which I think goes back to another thing that I want to kind of unpack more, which is this really problematic, oof, we have a... <laughs> A frame falling off the wall. <clears throat> yeah, nice. My house is chaos. I have a toddler, <laughs> and somehow everything becomes chaos. Anyway, go on. I mean, it just like fell with no, you know, no cause whatsoever. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so just on that kind of idea of weaponizing white privilege, and also the what seems to be aligned with it, which is this what we mentioned earlier, this really problematic, this really really problematic form of public discourse that we're sinking into, which is seems to be divisive and non-productive. So I agree with a lot of what you just said. I think that white privilege or privilege is an important concept because it it, it illuminates a few things. Yeah. Um, for example, I remember during the trial of um, George Zimmerman, who had shot Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman used the fact that he was afraid to justify having shot Trayvon Martin. Meanwhile, testimony to the effect that Trayvon Martin appeared afraid and running away from George Zimmerman was used to, like, suggest that Trayvon Martin was guilty of something, Mm. right? So it's amazing how, uh, you know, people get treated extremely differently in society based on their identity. That is incontrovertible, based on their racial identity, on their gender identity, and so forth. And it's sort of like um, with the idea of there being perspectival insight onto things. There is such thing as privilege, but you're right. We can't take the fact that there is um, privilege to then simply, like, berate people. Because here's the way that goes, right? You're privileged because you're white, I beat up on you for that. You can't change the fact that you're white. So in a way, it's very kind of um, 
Catholic or Christian, mm. it's, it becomes a matter of like guilt or mm. original sin, mm. right? So then no matter, if your politics is just your identity, then no matter what you do, um, of course, you can never change your, you know, the fact that you're white. And so it gives me license to just beat up on you and for us to continue talking about your guilt and for you to do like self-like remonstrations and, and mea culpas about your identity and your guilt. And then it's like, how does that help anyone? Yeah. Right? So my point is not that, oh, I sympathize with you white person because you've been made to feel guilty. My right. point is that that doesn't do anything for anyone. Yeah. Right? Again, that undermines solidarity. It undermines collective action. If instead we just created pathways towards white people and black people and people of every other identity and makeup in this city, for example, towards all struggling against police brutality and all struggling against racial injustice, and if we treated those things as changeable as opposed to, be, to like the stain of original sin, then we could get somewhere politically and we could make the world a better place. Mm. Mm. So, wow. So the stain of original sin, that's such an interesting kind of lens to, to think about what we're talking about. So in terms of, you know, now, and you're already starting to talk about it, in terms of kind of... Um, what you would brand, for lack of a better word, as the as the real progressive politics, politics that's actually going to take us somewhere, you know, transformative, and is going to, and can promise kind of a move beyond the sort of factional political thinking that we're seeing. Um, what would you prescribe? Like, what do you see as being more, more fruitful terms of conversation or topics of conversation um, besides what we're talking about? Well, I think that we should be very aware of the way that society as a whole um, perpetuates systems of injustice, oppression, exploitation, inequality. Mm -hmm. So we need to kind of de-individualize these issues in our... In, in, this is a point about our analysis and how we see things. So instead of attacking people on the basis of their identity... Things like white supremacy are very, very much written into the structures of society. Yeah. They're very much written into the education system. They're written... Like, one of the first things that I was appalled by and, and, and just surprised by when I first moved to this country and I got here in 2006 was how segregated it is. Yeah. Like, it is deeply, deeply segregated. I mean, I knew a little bit about American history and, like, desegregation fights in the 1960s and stuff... And I didn't realize that, like, the schools and the neighborhoods are all just completely segregated. Like, uh, other than forces of gentrification, which are forces of displacement and not integration. Yeah. So we need to have an analysis of, like, the way that systems do these things. And it's very... We don't... You know, you don't have to, like, look too hard and you don't have to make anything up to see the ways that white supremacy and patriarchy are perpetuated. I mean, as someone who not long ago went through the experience of being pregnant and giving birth like man patriarchy is inscribed in the medical system my yeah. friends still in 2017 like it's incredible the, the 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 way in which you get completely treated differently and condescended to and really? and not treated as an autonomous choice making person in the in the course of prenatal care and childbirth 
is incredible. I mean, it's almost medieval. So these things are very legible. Yeah. And these are the things we should be attacking. We shouldn't be focusing on our efforts on making individual people feel more guilty or point or or, or what you know what is now called virtue signaling. Yes. Pointing out how good and right my thought is yeah. about a given subject. Yeah. We should be focusing on attacking institutions and systemic forms of perpetuation of white supremacy, whether it's school to prison pipeline, the rates of incarceration, um, you know, voter suppression, all of these things. Not that we don't care about like our um, the racism that exists in our heads, because that's, you know, part of the problem. But we should really take as our target those systems and structures and we should struggle against them together right we can all point out the problems with the school to prison pipeline and all demand better policies in relation to that or we can all point out problems with the medical system or problems with transit accessibility and demand that you know i'm a big favor of what i call direct action so whether it's like a protest or a boycott or or a, a blockade or whatever like i'm in favor of taking action as groups in order to change things mm-hmm. like that yeah so um so you were involved in um the um stardust cafe or you have been is it continue is it continuing on is it still going on it is still going on so it's a place called ellen stardust diner and mm-hmm. it's in Times square and it's kind of like a famous tourist destination where it's the home of the singing waitstaff yeah. And they started forming a union about a year and a half ago. They have formed a union, and they've been fighting back on the job against things like um, unsafe working conditions. Hold on. What can I do to make this toddler less fun? <laughs> Come here. Um, and they've been very, very successful. So they've been doing, you know, those forms of direct action, like work refusals, for mm-hmm. example, um, when it comes to things they need to improve on the job. So there was a stage that they used to stand on to sing, and it was very rickety and unstable, and somebody fell off and broke his ankle, and then the employer de- denied them workman's comp. So they all started refusing to get up on that stage yeah. until the owners of the store finally fixed it and replaced it. Or they were told that they needed to learn um, a couple of songs on New Year's Eve, unpaid. During the holiday season, they're supposed to spend, spend hours and hours rehearsing this. And they collectively refused and said, like, no, we're not going to take dozens of hours out of our holiday schedule unpaid to learn two particular new songs on New Year's Eve just because you want us to. And, you know, management capitulated. So they've been... They've, they've been They've been a shining example of solidarity, standing together with each other and and um, fighting against specific injustices in their workplace and basically winning when they fight back in that way. Mm. So that's the kind of thing, yeah, that, that's sort of like my, the kind of thing that I do with my time nowadays and that, the, the <coughs> pardon me, um, the kind of political activity that I find really meaningful. Yeah. Oh, wow. I remember that toy. It's the toy where you put the, the different shaped um, blocks into the different shaped holes. And uh, that was one of my favorites. They call it the shape sorter. The shape sorter. <laughs> wow. That's a pretty major name for that. Um, okay. So, so why do you think so many people perceive leftist politics as the identity politics that we were 
um, describing and nothing else? Like, why is the kind of lens that you're offering becoming such a minority voice in, in the kind of political conversation? I mean, the short answer is because it's easier and less scary mm. to treat politics as a matter of, like, personal opinions and guilt and whatever than it is to get out into the streets or, or God forbid, your own workplace, yeah. your own school, your own building where you live, and fight for things there. The, the, we've also been completely programmed... In a way, we live in an extremely apolitical society. We have been programmed that there are vast swaths, areas of our life, where there, you don't do anything about it. So, mm. you know, you have an apartment, the rent is such and such. If you don't like it, you're taught to solve your problem individually, pick up, move, move to a cheaper apartment there. If you have a problem with your landlord, if you if there's something broken, you try to call the landlord, you try to call the super. If, as is very common in New York, they refuse to do so, you just suck it up or you fix it yourself or, again, you just pick up and move. I was living in a building in lower Manhattan for a while, and it was very close to ground zero. It was very dirty on the inside from the construction going on, and the landlord never, ever, ever, ever cleaned the hallways. When we all of us as tenants together emailed the landlord together about this, he cleaned the hallways the next day. We are totally trained not to take collective action mm. because collective action is, is a thing that works. We're trained not to see horrible living conditions in our rent apartments in New York as a political matter. We're trained not to see our working conditions at work as a political matter and something that we could fight back on if we banded together with other people. We're tended, we are trained to individualize our life, our outlook, our problems, and everything. And so I think that the identity politics stuff is just another manifestation of that. If I were in power, if I were running a school-to-prison pipeline, I would love for people to keep talking to each other about their privilege that <laughs> exists, you know, that like sticks to their very skin. If I were, you know running, if, if I were fu starving a transit system of funding and leaving it an embarrassing, inaccessible mess, I would love for people to keep talking to each other about, like, you know, identity politics, yeah. right? Yeah. That would serve me very, very well. So I think that that's not a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, and it also, it seems to fit very nicely with the kind of social media culture that we live in, where someone can sit at their computer and virtue signal to other, you know, like-minded individuals and walk away feeling like they've accomplished something politically. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, sort of on that note, you know, you mentioned at the beginning when we were talking about your dissertation, and I, I want to go into this a little more deeply and have you say a little more about it, because I really like, because um, I, I feel this way and t as well, like the de the degrading of political conversation and and you know and I have to even say I I'm sort of even though when I was at Ithaca College in my undergrad I can remember sort of being in it being in situations like this where we would go to a speaker who we didn't agree with and we just sort of yell at them um and and think that we were really standing up for the cause you know not letting someone speak and you know this is getting more airtime this idea that this is actually an infringement on free speech blah 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 so you know in instances where someone who, of course, we wouldn't agree with, like, um, what's her name? What's that woman who's, like, the anti-feminist 
white woman. And Coulter. And Coulter. Yeah. So Ann Coulter wants to come to my school and we protest that person coming in, um, you know, and feel like, you know, we've accomplished something uh, significant because, because her speech is, um, trauma inducing or something, you know, this kind of talk about how someone's, if someone's feelings are hurt by someone's political, you know, um, opinion that this is kind of cause and justification for shutting down their speech. So, you know, what is happening in our ability to communicate about these issues when stuff like this is happening? So it's funny because in my undergraduate experience, I did the same thing as you. I remember a couple of times going to a talk. One of them was by the Knights, I think it was put on by the Knights of Columbus or something, which is a Catholic men's organization and it was debating abortion Mm. and the other one was debating whether women should be allowed to serve in the armed forces which Mm. like they already did even at that time (laughs) and had for decades and yeah I went and and basically we trolled these events we went and we shouted at them or we like mocked the crap out of the event in advance Mm -hmm. Um, we packed the audience and asked them embarrassing questions and so on so at the time I guess we didn't really know platform but we trolled now you're right the tendency is to know platform I think that like no platforming there's validity to that mm-hmm. um i don't i don't really think no no platforming is shutting down free speech as some people yeah, claim yeah. um but i do think that no platforming is kind of one of those political strategies that's just like not terribly interesting yeah like if you want to prevent your school from bringing in like Condoleezza Rice as the valedictorian or the person who I forget the American terms for this but like the person who gives the talk at the graduation then I kind of think that's cool and that's a good move because you're sending a signal to the administration like we think this person's a war criminal and we want and like we don't want to talk to them Um, and I don't think it's snowflakey to do that Um, but I do think that for example like someone like Milo Yiannopoulos he is his whole game, his whole shtick doesn't work unless there are people protesting him and trying to get his talk shut down. Like, I don't even think the guy has a, a, any notes, like, on what to say, right? Like, he's, like, just relying on people to, to publicize and create a conflagration and likely get shut down. Wow. I've actually... Well, I saw him one time on, on Bill Maher's show, and, like, he didn't... He wasn't that funny, and he didn't have anything really good to say. Like, he can't really... He's somebody who doesn't really work outside of Twitter and, like, trolling people who are trolling him. Mm. Um, There was a rumor that he was going to start naming um, undocumented students at his Berkeley talk, but it doesn't... I mean, that was a rumor. Obviously, if he was going to do something like that, that's something that I would want to be stopped, but it's yeah. not clear that that was ever actually in the works or how he would even have that information. But anyway, so the, the argument that people are making when they're shutting down these talks is that, like, this doesn't really qualify as speech, right? It qualifies as, um, you know, trying to out undocumented students or it qualifies as, like, just hate-mongering and it's not a valid part of the debate, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to someone like Richard Spencer, Again, I think that you can certainly make that case. Yeah. I also am kind of like a real believer in like ACLU type, like free speech means free speech for everybody because unless you apply that 
principle really consistently and universally, then it doesn't get applied consistently and universally. And we as leftists, we're more often the ones saying the unpopular things. You want to protest a war? You want to just burn a a flag? Describe your country as militaristic and imperialist? You want to, like... like call out those in power you need very thorough tough free speech protections in order to do any of those things you know and so i think it's funny how leftists think that like we can kind of throw those out the window because we're the ones who more often need to use them you know now leftists will argue that like all this free speech crap is just an alibi for like protecting like racist whatever the thing is if you allow free speech in a society of course that's going to allow really racist and sexist and hateful speech because those things exist yeah. in our society, yeah. right? But I think you have to be careful about whether you just want to throw out a principle like free speech altogether because you have to think about what it might be doing that is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, it's if the, if the conversation or if the, you know, uglier opinions or points of view are out on the table, at least we know that they're on the table and we can start to kind of address them rather than assume that they don't exist. I mean, it seems like, you know, at least within with regards to this recent election, you know, everyone was seemed to be surprised. You know, we were kind of living in our liberal bubble, as many people have described, you know, of, of not thinking that people were really as racist as we thought they were. And not to say, I certainly don't want to imply that everyone who supported Donald Trump is a racist and everything like that. But, I, you know, I think it's... <clears throat> I think it's interesting that, you know, that there's been such a surprise about something that has seems to really just be um, unveiling or bringing to the surface something that's been there all along. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, something that I find really interesting. And, and of course, we can continue. Uh, uh, well, I want to get your thoughts on like Trump and the diagnosis like of what happened there. Um, one thing I find really interesting about the whole thing is that some of, you know, the talking points and the kind of ideological positions that a lot of people that support him, they seem like some of them are kind of leftist. You know what I mean? Like, like the, like the idea that the right wingers are the ones, I mean, I know there's like a longstanding tradition of like that liberal media, but like the media, we can all get behind that the mainstream media is like problematic and there's sensationalist news and we're not really talking about the issues and blah, blah, blah. Like we're all on board with that. And and it's funny that, you know, that I, when I encounter some Trump supporters, like my, my boyfriend's family, um, (laughs) they, you know, they assume it's like, oh, did you get that from CNN? Blah, blah, blah. Because there's this assumption that like, we're kind of married to this, like, idea, but we all agree, you know, like, uh, you know, not all of us, obviously. Some people think that they're, the, the mainstream news outlets are giving them, you know, solid information, but come on, you know, and then, and then other things like, like workers, you know, the, 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 the fact that, you know, the white working class Americans were essentially kind of silenced in this election. I mean, that's a left, you know, this is like a labor cause. So it's just interesting to me that now this kind of hard right perspective is like taking on the mantle of some of things that have traditionally been associated with the left. But, but of course, then that's also married with this kind of tinge of, of you know, all sorts of hate speech and anti-Semitism, racism and stuff like that. Yeah, there is so much to talk about and so much to criticize with Trump. In fact, it's almost like you don't even need to criticize Trump because he is his own walking demonstration of, I mean, he, like the lies and the corruption and the, yeah. the you know. 
Because um, you don't actually, I, I, I noted that, like, you don't really talk about Trump so much in your in your Facebook feed, which I always thought was interesting. It, it, because, because of this very reason, it seems like there's, it's almost like not worth it. It's not worth it because I do think that if you talk about Trump, that that is one of those things where you're either preaching to the converted, yeah. like all of us good liberals, or you are um, falling on deaf ears, like with your boyfriend's family. Um, like, if Donald Trump can't convince your boyfriend's family not to support da- Donald Trump, then you and I can't, yeah, right? Yeah. And I also, my problem with the mainstream media, and that covers the gamut from, like, Fox News to yeah. MSNBC, is that, like, I've always found that the mainstream media, the last thing the mainstream media really wants to talk about is politics. Yeah. And by politics, I don't mean the Hill. Yeah. By politics, I mean how power is distributed in society, how people are thereby treated in society, mm-hmm. right? How, like, look at all the stuff that's not considered political, like I was mentioning a minute ago. Um, landlord-tenant relations or workplace relations, the way your boss is, you know, bosses you around and you have, you don't, you know, you're supposed to just take it. So I found that the mainstream media has always been reticent about talking about politics. If you want a decent political newscast watch for example democracy now yeah, they'll yeah. talk about stories that n- that are nowhere Never, getting ca- yeah. covered but that are really important and now trump ha- is gives the media the perfect alibi for talking about politics they don't have ever have to talk about politics again because they can just talk about trump as a person and i've always thought that elections were 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 like daddy. yes that's daddy <laughs> elections were this you know kind of almost um, terrible media moment where they got covered as horse races and nobody wanted to actually talk about policy. I mean, they yeah. talk about what color tie people are wearing yeah. or what yeah. their wife's haircut is like, or whatever, but they do not talk about the policy profiles. And now the Trump moment is one where that has like just really gone to extremes. We're like, we don't talk about anything of meaningful debate in this country in, on TV anymore. We only talk about like the peccadillos and like weird behavior of the president. Um, but in terms of, like, how do you address this? So there's a training program for how to organize your workplace that I help run in the IWW and that I ran with the workers at Stardust Diner that has become the basis of their campaign. And in that training program, we address the issue of, like, well, how do you create a union with your coworkers, right? How do you do that? How do you get on the same page and build that solidarity so that you can take collective action? And the answer is not to walk up to them and say, hey, do you like unions? That is the last thing that works, right? The thing that turns out to work is to walk up to your coworker and ask them a question about what what they're struggling with at work, yeah. what they don't like about work, what they're having issues with with managers or with bosses. And then to suggest, well, what if I backed you up or we got five of us who were having having this same problem and confronted the manager about this and asked them to make this specific change or whatever? that people get on board with, right? Likewise, um, when it comes to political stuff, I don't think you open the conversation by saying, hey, do you like Trump? Or hey, do you like the the Democrats? Or whatever. I think it's worth talking to each other about what our issues are, Mm -hmm. right? And how we can address those collectively. And so, like, we have the worst way of talking about politics, which is just that horse race, pick a side, one team versus another team, one channel versus another channel kind of way. But instead, if we started the conversation by, like, looking at what our actual social and political and economic issues are, that could be better. And you're right. 
it, there, it's it, things get fudgy with Trump because it's like that's like trade seems like a left issue, a labor issue, and so is he left or is he right? The answer is that he's a populist, and yeah. populism is a very, very dangerous phenomenon mm-hmm. that specifically camouflages or or blurs the lines between left and right. Yeah, and it does so. You know, and, and it's often masked, or pre- sorry, it, it's often presented as like anti-elitism and anti-corruption, and it's for the little guy. But it's extremely slippery and dodgy. And you know, historically, it has not been a force for progressive change. Instead, it's been a force for, ironically, just like shoring up those in power. Mm. You know, so yeah. that's yeah, that's what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, and 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 it seems so. I to to imagine that. A billionaire from New York City, a property, you know, owner, um, like what? What do we call him? Like a property? What's the, what's I think the word? He's like a property brander. You mean developer? Yeah. Well, developer? no, I'm thinking of a, a different word. But anyway, um, I'll let it go. So, but to think that that person would have the interests of you know the little guy in like rural, you know, Michigan in mind, like it's just it's so hard for me to wrap my head around. I and, think. Sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. I think that people voted for him as a protest vote. Yeah. So yeah. he looked like he was the most outside of the existing political structure, which yeah. is true. He had yeah. never served in a government position before, whereas Hillary Clinton looked very much inside, and people are very frustrated, and yeah. they have very good reasons to be frustrated, and he was a protest vote. Now, you see protest votes going on elsewhere. My home province in Canada is kind of like Texas of Canada. It's oil... <laughs> Guns, cattle, and conservative politics. Oh man! And we had the same concern. I didn't know that existed in Canada. Yeah. So, so that's what drove me into the arms of the punk scene and made me political. So, I, so yeah, it does. And they, there was the same conservative party in charge of the province for like forty-five years or something. Wow! And then just recently. They elected a social democratic party. No. So, like a left-leaning social democratic party, and. I think that the reason is it was because it, it was a protest vote. So the protest vote can favor the left-wing candidate or the right-wing candidate. Yeah. The problem is that, like, when people get into power, generally that kind of manifests in the same way. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying there aren't relevant differences. Um, I think it makes a difference whether the candidate is pro-choice or not, for example. But generally speaking, power government seems to operate the same way no matter who's in charge. Do do you get any more power in relation to your boss at work when a different person gets elected into government? I mean, no, not really. It leaves all of these areas untouched, right? And so I have always been somebody who's very hesitant, if not critical, about electoral politics. I find that, I mean, this Social Democratic Party in Alberta is now just acting in the service of the oil industry, right, which is to be expected because that's the big, powerful political juggernaut, just like when Obama was in power, he still conducted a, a lot of deportations. He still co- conducted a lot of business-friendly policies, a lot of American imperialist military adventures abroad. I mean, things don't really change that much. The way things do change is when big pressure and big power is applied from below. Mm-hmm. And so you saw this, for example, in the case of something like when 
this country finally got marriage equality through the Supreme Court decision a couple of years ago, where people were like thanking the justices of the Supreme Court, <laughs> when realistically that was the result of decades yeah. of like sometimes bloody struggle. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, it, after the AIDS epidemic and after like things like everything from Stonewall riots to like political specific political pressuring of politicians. I mean, everything... And then, like, DOMA, Defense of Marriage Act in the 90s, signed by the Clintons, was kind of like the death throes of, like, the resistance to the arc of history bending towards freedom and justice mm-hmm. and ma- marriage equality. And But that was all the result of, like, massive ground-level grassroots struggle. It wasn't because nine people in the Supreme Court, like, looked at one particular case, which, mm. interestingly, was organized around property rights, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, real change comes from that struggle. That's why I think that that solidarity with other people is so important, not just because I think it's a nice concept, but because only when you get that solidarity and collective action do you do do the kinds of things that bring about real political change. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's so difficult for people to see uh, the economic... I mean, people are seeing the economic, the economic layer of politics, but why do you think it becomes so easily easy to, uh, as we were saying before, slip into this identity politics versus talking about like the economic structures that are, that are, you know, that are oppressing us? Well... We are, again, trained to place economic things mostly outside of politics. Mm. If you look at the way politicians talk about the economy, they talk about it as though it's the weather, right? Mm -hmm. So the economy does things, it does this thing, it does that thing, and then we all have to make sacrifices for it. So that's what austerity is. Austerity is when everybody is told to tighten their belt and accept a little bit less because the economy demands it. If you looked at... So one thing that was really interesting that's happened in our lifetimes is prior to 2008, nobody... or sorry, prior to 2011, nobody had politicized the 2008 economic crisis and collapse that had happened, right? So until... Before Occupy, obviously people, like... There was talk about it, and there was analysis of it, and, and there was political response to it, but nobody politicized inequality mm. until Occupy happened, and it had that um, discussion of the 99% versus the 1%. Prior to that, it was acknowledged that there was, you know, maybe, uh, you know, economic problems and inequality in the country, and people were upset about the bailout of the banks and whatever, but but it wasn't treated as like a political issue that could be handled differently and and that could be otherwise. And so, you know, again, I think that we're trained to not allow certain things to be politically debatable or contestable or even seen as political at all. And sometimes the work that we have to do is just politicizing things at all, right? Like, it's only because of some of the work in the... uh, by in the last couple of um, years of people like really politicizing the issue of prisons and really Mm. describing how they are the new Jim Crow and describing how this is another area of basically kind of like plantation slavery type labor and and describing the school to prison pipeline and describing um, like with Khalif Browder his incarceration for three years on Rikers Island much of it spent in solitary confinement for something he quite obviously didn't do which was allegedly steal a kid's backpack which, why should that land you in Rikers for three years anyway? Like, people are finally starting to politicize these issues instead of treating them as just kind of like, oh, a thing that happens. And I think that that's really important. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
do you think that we are moving now in the, like, you know, despite all of the criticisms that we've been sort of discussing around the, the kind of nature of the conversation around politics, do you feel like we are moving in a positive direction? I mean, it seems like the tone of most people is that, like, we're in a dark period, you know, Trump is in power, blah, blah, blah. But then at the same time, and I'm sort of packing a lot in here, at the same time, you know, you had some people who were like, I voted for Trump because it's going to bring, it's going to be faster to the revolution. You know, like, they thought it was like, we just need to topple things down, whereas, you know, Hillary Clinton just sort of hung on to that neoliberal status quo, which there seems to be, like, some credence to that. But what do you think about that kind of... Like, where are we at in terms of this kind of evolution? Yeah, that was sort of Slavoj Zizek's line was, Mm. may as well elect Trump because that'll galvanize. Yeah. And, you know, empirically, factually, I'm not sure he was wrong. I mean, I do think people were galvanized with Trump's election. There was that enormous, like, um, million women's march on the Capitol shortly thereafter in response. Um, I am not someone who believes in making conditions worse so that things can get better. Historically, people tend to fight harder when things actually get a little bit better. Mm. And so I don't believe in making people miserable for the sake of, like, (laughs) galvanizing them politically. Um, I, I do think that, like... Trump is a worse president than Hillary would have been, but I also... And, and yeah, like, there may have been some complacency if Hillary had been elected, but the issues would have basically been the same, and the mm-hmm. issues are the same. Yeah. And they are would the, you have voted for Bernie? Well, I... So, fun fact. Yes. Fun fact. <laughs> number one, I'm an, I am... Politically speaking, I'm an anarchist. Okay. Don't let that word throw you, you, because it's just <laughs> my politics are everything I've been saying for the last like yeah, exactly. 45 minutes, right? And that's such a loaded term. People right, don't it's really such know a loaded term. Yeah. I'm not somebody who like is throwing Molotov cocktails in the streets or you know, whatever. <laughs> not that I think that that's always the wrong thing to do, but whatever. <laughs> so, fun fact, I'm an anarchist. It means that I have, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically completely skeptical of the idea that we can change things at the voting box, at the yeah. voting booth. Doesn't mean I think that nobody should vote. However, by force of circumstance because I've been out of Canada for so long and because I'm not a citizen yet here I am no longer eligible to vote in any country No, (laughs) yeah it's very funny I am completely disenfranchised Um, would I have voted for Bernie like yes in a strategic way of like well at least he was politicizing issues uh, economic issues that no other candidates seem willing to talk about his campaign seemed more about actual policy platforms as opposed to like you know for example trump taking pot shots at like jeb bush for being low energy or whatever (laughs) right um and i think that like his policy he had a better policy profile than hillary clinton like but again like when we talk about this stuff we think we're talking about politics but we're not we're talking about a horse race and i would rather we start politicizing our issues like how we are all completely disempowered and disenfranchised at work for example and what can be done about that instead yeah yeah so that's interesting because i'm I'm glad you brought up the question of anarchy because one of the things i did want to ask you is sort of how you kind of position yourself um uh politically because i didn't know if you know you thought consider yourself a marxist or a socialist anti blah 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 so um in and i you sort of defined it in the sense that like from what i understand you saying anarchy to you is um a lack of belief that politics is defined by the kind of electoral system that is you know has been normalized as politics in our society is that the only defining feature of it to you or is there other is there other other qualities to it as well 
Yeah, so to, to, to put a finer point on that first aspect, I think it was Lucy Parsons who said something like, never be fooled into thinking that the rich will allow you to vote away their wealth. Mm. Um, but, yeah, there are other dimensions to to what I can, to my anarchism. So anarchism is a tradition that goes back like kind of 120, 150 years. And it originally was always a very socially oriented philosophy. So it was similar to socialism or communism or whatever in that it believed that there needed to be like mass movement for political change. Only later did it start becoming identified with this sort of like lone wolf individualists who like, you know, reject society or whatever. Yeah. Um, to me, the significant difference between... I mean, I, if somebody called me a socialist, like, I would just shrug and say, like, yeah, that's, a, that's basically right. The difference between anarchism and other left positions is that it, it's, it's sort of what I've been saying this whole podcast, which is I believe that power comes from, like, collective action from below. Mm-hmm. And so there are versions of communism and socialism and whatever that think that like the masses need to be led or they need a po- the right political party to get into power mm-hmm. or you know they need a vanguard of like really really smart active people or whatever. Those aren't things I believe. I believe for example, if you look at the um workplace organizing campaign that's taking place at the diner Stardust, that is just workers coming together, discussing their grievances, their issues, and collectively deciding on what action to take. It's very, very different from a standard union campaign. In a standard union campaign, a union comes in, gets people to sign union cards, and has them elect the union. So they have a vote in which they decide whether to elect the union. Then the union negotiates the union, you know, there may be some workers, but also some already existing union members. They negotiate with the employer over a contract. That's a kind of more, it's not a top-down model, but it's a more bureaucratic model, and it's one that doesn't rely on power on what we kind of anachronistically call the shop floor, Mm -hmm. right? So in the actual restaurant. And I think that those workers' real power comes from their ability to take action right there in that restaurant where they already are. Mm -hmm. And not from my ability to sit down with their boss and hammer out a contract. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow, this has been such an interesting conversation and um, and lots of like really solid, illuminating points in here that I think are going to be really interesting and hopefully kind of new and refreshing for some people listening. Um, so to close, is there anything, you know, based on what we've talked about that you feel like you want to share that would wrap up the conversation or anything like that? Well, one thing I would say is I discovered yoga about <laughs> six or seven years ago, and it was absolutely life-changing I think that so I went to a class and at the end of the class the instructor said something like thank your body Mm -hmm. and I just about dissolved into tears because it was a thought that I'd never had I'm somebody who like lives in her own head way too much and Mm -hmm. is kind of too uh intellectualized and stuff and yoga was something that kind of pulled me away from that and and re-centered me in this wonderful way and so I want to say that I have nothing but respect for the practice. I haven't been able to do it since as much since I had my kid, but like I miss it terribly and and for five years I went like three, two, three times really? a week. Oh my god. I can't god. believe I didn't ask you this yet. Yes. No, it, it was like it was life changing for me. And I and so I want to acknowledge that like 
there are different kinds of practices and orientations that, like, what I have just finished describing, you know, politics is not the be-all and end-all, and, like, intellectually criticizing things is not the be-all and end-all, and I don't think that there has to be any kind of conflict between, you know, the kinds of um, politics and political orientation I've been describing and a yogic practice, and, in fact, like, I... Yeah, like I have nothing but respect for that tradition. Yeah, no, and I think, I actually think that far from it being in conflict, I actually think you could do, you know, a whole kind of analysis where what we're talking about collective political action and like, and the need to really engage is something that you could find in, for example, the Bhagavad Gita, which is a core, you know, yogic text. And, and also like, you know, untangling ourselves from ways of thinking is totally in the Yoga Sutras, this kind of like chitta vritti nirodaha, where you are ceasing the fluctuations of the mind stuff, you know, the fluctuations being these kinds of, you know, patterns of thought that are constantly regurgitated and re-imbibed over and over again and form our kind of worldview. So it's totally in line, and I'm so glad you're a yogi. (laughs) (laughs) And also I think, you know, what you're saying, that was actually my experience as well, because, you know, I came... To me, I feel like I landed in my body through my head, and it took me, you know, practicing yoga, studying, going to school for philosophy, and really like being on that kind of academic path, and then becoming more influenced by the physical practice and realizing that there was something profoundly disconnected about just abstraction without a kind of centeredness in our embodiment, which is sort of what this whole project is about, essentially. So Yeah, I mean, I basically think that everybody should be in therapy and everybody <laughs> should be in yoga slash meditation yeah. because I think that as a, you're, you're, as a person, you're kind of not quite there unless yeah. you're doing those things. And I love that you wanted to do this podcast because I think that there can be a tendency within yoga, as with everything else, as with politics, as with everything, to individualize it and to think that the practice is about like entirely withdrawing or, or it's like very abstract. But as you're saying, there's, uh, that tradition makes itself available to a different kind of approach, one that is more collective and that, and that is perhaps more engaged in the world in, in, a, in a justice-oriented way. So I think that that's fantastic. All right, awesome. Me too. <laughs> so um, do you want to share maybe, you know, for anybody that's listening um, who maybe wants to get a hold of you or ask you a question, do you want to share how, well, first of all, Marianne Garneau, look her up on Facebook if you want to check out these epic feeds. She doesn't turn anybody down. You heard her earlier. She does <laughs> not not say yes to anyone who in friend requests her just don't troll her wall or maybe do and she'll troll you back no i love trolls <laughs> people are welcome to troll all right and uh, but just don't unfriend because she's not going to unfriend you nice <laughs> so um all right this has been really awesome marianne thanks so much for chatting with me today thank you all right talk to you soon you bet on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one but the union makes us strong It is we 
of the prairies built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving mid the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. untold millions that they never toil to earn but without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn we can break their haughty power gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong Greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms, magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. 